everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Right now we're in a series called, Is God Racist? Where we're looking at the Bible for answers to the injustice of racism and discrimination in our world today. Today we're looking at the Bible's treatment of interethnic or so-called interracial marriage. If you're new to the ministry, welcome. Uh, leave a comment below to let us know that you were here. Now I'd like to start today with a quote from the public relations spokesperson for a major Christian university. He was explaining the school's prohibition against interracial dating. And he said, God has separated people for his own purposes. He has erected barriers between the nations, not only land and sea barriers, but also ethnic, cultural, and language barriers. God has made people different from one another and intends those differences to remain. Our university is opposed to intermarriage of the races because it breaks down the barriers God has established. Now, if I didn't know anything else about the Bible and I heard that, I would conclude God must be racist. I wish I could say that I dug up this quote from an obscure little college in the 1700s. That wouldn't make it any more right, but at least we could say that was part of our distant history. But the statement was made in 1998 by a prominent school many of you have heard of. It would take the focus of the secular media surrounding the visit of a presidential candidate in 2000, along with three decades with its tax-exempt status revoked and a Supreme Court decision against it, to finally bring the university to reverse its policy. Even after all that, it would take another eight years for the university to admit that its policies were wrong. And my question is, why didn't the scriptures drive them to that conclusion? How could they not only read, but teach the Bible and get this so wrong? And more importantly, are there ways that we're doing the same thing today? Are there areas of prejudice in my life and yours that blind us from seeing what God wants us to see and hearing what he wants us to hear? To answer those questions, I'd ask you to turn with me to Numbers 12, verses 1 to 16. If you don't have your Bible handy, I'd encourage you to pause the video and grab one so that you can follow along as I walk you through it. Numbers 12, verses 1 to 16. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he'd married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away, and he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out in the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of God. Now, while there's more that this passage teaches us, it at least shows us what happens when Miriam tries to tear down Moses for marrying an African woman. Before we get started, let me clarify why I'm referring to Moses' wife as African. It's not because I think that Africa is a country or don't realize that the text calls her a Cushite woman. It's just because many of you have probably never heard of Cush and you might otherwise miss the racial implications of this text. To be more blunt, Moses would have been expelled for this marriage if he had been a student at that Christian university I was talking about. And so it's important for us to understand how God responds to it. Now, in verse 1, it says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. The details in this sentence are important. First of all, it mentions Miriam first, even though the convention at the time would have been to list the man before the woman. Miriam is taking the lead in this mutiny and Aaron has been enlisted for support. While it says that they spoke against Moses, verse 2 makes it clear that they're not speaking to Moses. They're speaking about him behind his back. They want to see how much negative support they can stir up for their power play against him. So what was their grievance? It, it says it was because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. In fact, it repeats the phrase tw twice in one verse. At first, you might read this as an example of poor writing if we didn't know that Hebrew uses repetition to emphasize things. In fact, if, as you read this chapter there, there are a number of repeated phrases like this, almost as if to underline their importance. Here, by repeating the term Cushite woman, instead of using her name or just identifying her as a woman or Moses' wife, it's clear that the ethnicity of Moses' marriage partner was the problem for Miriam. Today, um, many commentators are convinced that Moses married a second time, either because his first wife Zipporah died or during her extended absence from him. Now, as we saw last time, there was a large multi-ethnic crowd that followed the Israelites out of Egypt. And some of those became sojourners, meaning they began to follow Jewish practices and worship the God of Israel. And presumably, the Cushite woman Moses married was one of them. At the time, 
Cush was a powerful African kingdom south of Egypt in what is today modern-day Sudan. And we know that there were large numbers of Cushites living in Egypt at exactly the time of the Exodus. So the most natural reading of the text is Moses married an African woman from the kingdom of Cush and Miriam took offense and thought she could use it as leverage against him. Despite that, many scholars, particularly during the era when interracial marriages were frowned upon, they've looked for other explanations. The most common suggestion was to appeal to Habakkuk 3.7, which connects Midian and a place called Kushan, and conclude, maybe Cushite is the same as Midianite, and this passage in Numbers is just talking about Moses' first wife, Zipporah. There are a number of reasons why that's not likely. The first is, Moses married Zipporah in Exodus chapter 2. There's really no reason to bring it up now as if it's new information. The second is, Kushan in Habakkuk 3.7 isn't the word Cush, and the connection between Kushan and Midian isn't even clear anyway. Zipporah's family is said to be Midianite in Exodus 3 then again in Exodus 18, and then more recently, and compared to this pa passage, in Numbers 10. Why would they switch to referring to her as a Cushite now? The final reason for believing that this Cushite woman is not Moses' first wife, but in fact a second wife from an African nation, is that both the early Greek and the Latin translation of translations of Numbers 12 use the word for Ethiopian here for Cushite in this verse. That's because by that point, the African kingdom of Cush had faded from the scene and had been replaced by Ethiopia. So people would have understood that. That tells us that the early church didn't struggle with the idea of Moses marrying an African woman. That objection seems to have arisen after racism was introduced with the European slave trade. Now, for some of you, this is probably too much detail, and I apologize for that. But I've belabored this on purpose because there's a lot at stake. If one of the godliest and most prominent Jewish figures in the Bible married an African woman and a family member objected on the basis of her ethnicity and the color of her skin, then this chapter gives us an important test case on God's opinion on the whole matter. But before we hear God's verdict, we need to see what else was motivating Miriam and Aaron's attack. In verse 2, it's like they're saying, Moses is getting a little big for his britches. Who does he think he is anyway? It's not like he's the only one who hears from God. Miriam was a prophet. Aaron was a high priest. They were staging a power play to carve out a bigger piece of the religious pie for themselves. Although discrimination on, against people on the basis of their skin color wasn't a thing yet in the ancient world, there have always been people who looked down on others who were different. And Mary, Miriam hoped that there was enough anti-foreigner sentiment among the Israelites that she could take over some of Moses' power base. So the stage is set. How will God respond? At, at the end of verse 2, it just says, And the Lord heard it. When you slander one of God's leaders or one of God's children, God hears it. Interestingly, we don't, we don't hear Moses make any defense for himself. 
He hasn't hired a PR team to sway public opinion. Instead, verse 3 just tells us how meek Moses was. It says that he was more meek than anyone else in the world. And the point is that he didn't get down in the mud with Miriam and Aaron. He entrusted himself to God and God came to his defense. In verse 4, God calls them to himself. He wants Moses, Miriam, and Aaron to come to the tent of meeting. And in verse 5, God comes down in a pillar of cloud and confronts them. It, it, it reminds me of a time when I was called to the vice principal's office in elementary school. I, I was fighting with another boy. The other guy had started something and I fought back and we both end up in front of the vice principal. That vice principal was the most terrifying individual I had met up until that point in my life. But I'm sure the fear at being called into the presence of God at that time, particularly at a time like this after what they had done, was multiplied many, many times. But you read the text and there's no reprimand for Moses. There's no indication that he had done anything wrong in marrying a Cushite woman. There's nothing but vindication. God starts in verse 6 by describing how he reveals his will to the prophets. God speaks through visions and dreams like, like the ones you see interpreted by Joseph or Daniel. There's a message, but it's kind of cryptic. It involves some explanation. But it's different with Moses. In verse 8, God says that with him I speak mouth to mouth. In other words, God speaks to Moses the way I'm speaking to you right now, or the way that you might speak with a friend. With Moses, God's language is clear and direct. There are no riddles. There is no guesswork. God not only reveals to Moses the will of God, but he reveals himself to him. They share an intimacy that was unique. And so Miriam's claim that because he's a prophet and she's a prophet, they should be on an equal footing. It's just rejected outright. In, in verse 7, God calls him my servant Moses. And he says, he is faithful in all my house. He may share some skills and responsibilities with Miriam, but he's been entrusted with the entire estate. It's a different level of authority. If Israel was Downton Abbey, Moses is Carson and Miriam is Mrs. Patmore. And so God concludes at the end of verse 8, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? It's not that there's no appropriate accountability. God's leaders aren't above questioning. There are lots of examples of prophets confronting kings with their sins, for example. But that's not what this is. Miriam is wrong in judging Moses for marrying a Cushite. The power play that she staged through her slander was just sin. And Moses is completely vindicated. But what about Miriam? You, you read verses 6 to 8 and it's clear who God sided with. But did she and Aaron get off easy? Verse 9 just says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he departed. Now, the kindling of God's anger is never a pleasant thing. But maybe they just got a lecture. Well, as a cloud disappears, God's presence disperses in the, in the cloud, it's clear what's happened. It says, 
Miriam was leprous like snow. Now, the term translated as leprosy in the Bible is a very broad term covering a variety of skin diseases. And it's like, it's unlikely here that what Miriam had is what we now call Hansen's disease or the modern term for leprosy. But she was instantly affected by a terrible skin condition that caused her skin to flake and peel all over. Remember how we saw in verse 1 that Moses' marriage to the Cushite woman, woman was mentioned twice for emphasis? Well, notice what happens in verse 10. After telling us that Miriam's skin was leprous like snow, it adds, And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. It's repetition again for emphasis. We hear what's happened to her, but then it's as if we're to picture her up close from Aaron's view and just see how horrible the affliction is. The irony couldn't be lost on anyone. The woman who had judged Moses' wife for the color of her skin was now judged by God with a skin disease. How's that for making a statement? But that's not all. In verse 14, God decrees exile for Miriam. She's to go into quarantine for seven days outside the camp. In fact, in verse 15, it says, the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. In other words, while Miriam was having her time out, the entire nation had to sit and wait for her. I think most of you have experienced this, right? It usually happens when somebody in the class does something wrong and won't admit it. <laughs> what does the teacher say? Well, we'll all just wait until whoever did this comes forward. <laughs> and everybody groans. <laughs> in Miriam's case, you have more than a million people who are told they have to pull over to the side of the road and hang out for a week while Miriam finishes her time of isolation. Of course, everyone would be asking what the holdup was. And they would hear the whole story and learn that the woman who judged another as an outsider was made an outsider herself by God. The person who tried to put up walls between who was in and who was out was sent out and made to feel the shame that she had put on Moses and his Cushite wife. God's message is forceful. As we saw last week, he still opposes marriages between his people and those who worship other gods. But in his eyes, there are no interracial marriages. We are one race made in his image, and he imposes the arbitrary walls that people would build between others on the basis of skin color, ethnicity, or geography. That Christian university I mentioned, they were right to reverse their policy on dating and marriage. But I wish it was God's word, not public pressure, that had convicted them. And I can't help but think that part of the problem is that most of us, myself included, have read the Bible colorblind. Now, being colorblind is something that people sometimes talk about when they say they're not racist. I, I'm not a racist. I see everyone colorblind. The idea is that not only do you not treat people differently on the basis of the color of their skin, you don't think about those things at all. It just doesn't enter your mind. The problem is that in a world that's been influenced by racism for more than 500 years, 
trying to see colorblind is actually to be blind to, to the way that racialized people are treated differently and unfairly. And the problem with reading the Bible colorblind is that we miss many of the implications of the Bible's teachings to the racial injustices of our world today. Do you identify more with Moses or Miriam in your attitude towards so-called interracial marriages? Someone has said that the real question of Christian discipleship is not, can I be your brother in Christ, but can I be your brother-in-law? Or who can't your child marry? If our fellowship as believers builds walls at the line of marriage, then we've turned the family of God into something less and something worse. And as this passage shows, that's an attitude that kindles God's anger. Now, as we went through this, I might have given the impression that Moses was a silent bystander in this chapter. That's not the case. We don't have any record of him saying anything when he was slandered and attacked, but he does speak. When Miriam is struck with leprosy, Aaron cried out to Moses for mercy. Most people would have been happy she was getting what she deserved. You and I might have given a condescending lecture, but Moses was too humble for that. In verse 13, he turned to God and he cried out, Oh God, please heal her, please. And God answered his prayer. God healed Miriam because of Moses' intercession. And it's that grace that turns this moment into a life lesson instead of a life sentence. And the reality is that we all need that intercession in our life, or we won't find the courage to deal with our prejudices and our sins. Do you know the one who intercedes for the mercy of God in your life? Hebrews 3 verse 5 references our passage today when it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses' unique position as a faithful servant over all God's house pointed to Jesus' unique position as the Son of God, who's faithful over all God's house. Jesus was even more meek than Moses when he faced his accusers, and he makes intercession for our sins when we come to him for forgiveness. Miriam was sent outside the camp as discipline for her sin, but Jesus went outside the camp to bear the punishment for our sin. Through repentance and faith in him, there's a path for sinners into the love and acceptance of God. Don't let your sins leave you sitting outside the camp. Bring them to Jesus who bears them and secures your mercy. And with the grace that he gives, examine your life and attitude in light of God's word. Are you building up walls where God would tear them down? Are you excluding people that God would invite in? Are you tearing people down instead of building them up? There's power to change for all who bring their sins to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we've looked at this passage, we've 
We've talked a lot about Moses and we've talked a lot about Miriam. And in one sense, we've treated this issue like an abstract idea, a test case to evaluate. But we can't help but think of the Cushite woman. We can't help but feel the pain she must have felt being excluded, being rejected by one who was to be her sister-in-law. And Father, we do pray for your grace and mercy on those in our fellowship who have been made to feel excluded in, in various ways. But we pray for those in our, in our past that have felt the pain of discrimination and prejudice. And we pray that you would root it out in all of its forms in our lives. Do that work in our, in our hearts, Father. Reveal those sins by your Holy Spirit. And may we bring them to Christ, the one who bore our shame, the one who took our punishment outside the camp, that we might come in and that we might embrace the family of God and together with all the family of God, rejoice in your great salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope today's message has helped you see God's heart for true unity in the body of Christ and his passion to tear down the walls that people would build up. If you think this is a message that other people need to hear, then help share the link, spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.